0: So I was uh, born, quite literally, my, my life is owed to the Methodist Church. Um, I was born at Harris Methodist Hospital in Fort Worth. Any, any Tarrant County kids in the room or online? Yeah, Tarrant County, best county. Um, I was born septic, so like, quite literally I owe my life uh, to the Methodist Church and the Methodists who formed that hospital one day long ago. I, I grew up uh my first experience with church was going uh, to vbs's at my grandparents church in georgia uh, and then i i f- was baptized in their church uh, when my little brother was born i was always kind of frustrated that we had to wait till he showed up for me to get baptized right um and then my home church growing up was william c martin united methodist church in bedford texas that's where i was confirmed it's where i went on mission trips it's where i come to really uh, have faith in jesus Then when I was in college, I deconstructed and reconstructed my faith when I was with the Denton Wesley Foundation. You're seeing a trend here. Then I worked for my home church again after college, and then I went to a church called Lovers Lane. It had a Methodist church where I met my wife, and I found my calling to ordain ministry, and we had both of our kids, and they were baptized, and now I find myself here with you those in the room and online at Arapaho United Methodist Church. And I, and I trust that one day, the United Methodist Church will be there for me um, in the end, uh, when my time on this earth comes to a close. Church has an interesting way of showing up for many of us in those beginnings, those endings, and those in-betweens. Um, those, those moments that can kind of define a life, so to speak, they, they, they seem to rise a bit higher or stick out a bit more than the, than the everyday. And yet the way we understand how the church exists, why the church exists, what the life of faith has to do with life in the midst of those beginnings, those endings, and those in-betweens, that, that's an important conversation to have. And specifically, how do we understand this church, meaning Arapahoe UMC, and also our denomination as, a, as Methodists, or our theology as Wesleyans, Methodist being our denominational tradition, Wesleyan being our theological tradition, how do we... How do we understand these things, and how are they distinct from, perhaps, other streams of Christianity? That's what we're going to talk about for the next seven weeks, Um, going on a journey of beginnings and things and in-betweens, and talking about how we understand why church exists and how the life of faith uh, is integrated into the full life. This Sunday, we're talking about baptism. Uh, as we just evidenced with Cooper. And so we'll be talking about uh, baptism generally, but more specifically, the understanding of what it means in the Methodist church, in the Wesleyan theological tradition. For some, this may be a lot of information that maybe you already know. I hope you hear it in a new way today. But I also know that for many, this is your first Methodist church, your first Wesleyan theological church that you've ever been Part of Maybe this is your first Sunday watching. Maybe this is the first sermon you chose to tune into on YouTube. And so perhaps this could be a new and healing way to look at an old subject. We're going to be using, uh, for our text this morning, the Gospel of Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 21, we're going to read first this little vignette of Jesus' baptism, which is told many times um, through the Gospels, but um, uh, we're going to look at Luke's version, not so much for the baptism itself, but for what comes next. I'll say more about that then. We read in Luke chapter 3, verse 21, from the Common English Bible, it says this, when everyone was being baptized, Jesus also was baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit came down on him in bodily form like a dove. And there was a voice from heaven, you are my son, whom I dearly love, in you I find happiness. So there are many theological threads you could pull from in this text. If you've come to church for any length of time, you've heard many preachers preach many sermons on this story. Um, One that's important for us today is this is one of the rare scriptural references to what we call the Trinity in the Christian faith, this like core central concept of how we understand God as three in one, Trinitarian. We see all three persons of the Trinity, as we say, present in this story. There is God, the Holy Parent, Frequently and classically referred to as Father, uh, whose voice comes down from heaven saying, You are my Son, whom I dearly love. There is God the Son present in Jesus. And then there is God the Holy Spirit, who descends, as it says, like a dove. It's important and formative in our faith and understanding how we understand God. This three-in-one idea. But as Wesleyans, we also believe something unique about the way that God is at work through baptism and through the larger life of faith. It's another kind of three-in-one concept, and it all has to do with grace. I want to talk about grace for a moment before we move on. In the Wesleyan tradition, in the Methodist church, we talk about grace in, in three distinct ways. The first is provenient grace. That's a really obtuse word (laughs) that actually uh, gets at the sort of universal grace that covers all people upon creation, right? This, This is the grace of God alive and at work in every single person, even baby Cooper, and it's why we baptize infants. We believe that God's grace is alive and at work in every single person, whether they can articulate faith in God, whether they have a concept of God or not. Now, this is distinct amongst other streams of Christianity. Not all, but amongst many. Perhaps you've come from a stream of of Christianity that didn't talk about grace in this way. The sort of universal, expansive, totally free of charge kind of grace. Some Christianity churches, some some streams of theology, there's a barrier that you have to get over before you can experience that grace of God. Not here. The old cliched image, but it's so good. It still works. It's like the chips and salsa at the Tex-Mex table. You sit down, and it's already there. You didn't have to order it. It's free of charge. In fact, I got a bone to pick with any restaurant that charges me for chips and salsa. Anybody else out there, say amen. Provenient grace, if you hear nothing else about provenient grace, it's like the chips and salsa at the textbook table. It's already there when you pull up a seat, right? We are born into this grace. We cannot run from it. Then there's what we call justifying grace. Now this is the grace that is most often uplifted in the moment of baptism uh, through most Christian churches, and and the language that we will hear people use around around justifying grace is that that's the grace of God that cleanses us. We'll hear that language of cleansing in baptism. We we heard in our children's moment one of our, our kids talked about how water washes our hands and washes us during bath time, right? And we'll use that imagery, and and maybe you hear the language of God cleansing us, and that those hairs on the back of your neck begin to stick up because you've heard that language used in a really harmful way in churches in the past. So let's talk about what we're cleansed from specifically, and maybe more importantly, what we're cleansed for. See, I hear a lot of churches and pastors in the moment of baptism talking about that cleansing, justifying grace of God, almost exclusively surrounding personal moral sin, right? And isn't it interesting that that personal moral sin is always defined by that church or that pastor? Right? And, and what we're cleansed from is all the disgusting, despicable parts of us that God can't stand to look at. And then after baptism, we're like all bright, shiny, and new, and suddenly God loves us more. Right? That's the effect that it gives. Except see, in the, in the Methodist church, and the Wesleyan tradition, this provenient grace says that God already loves you exactly as you are. That grace has already covered you. That's the starting point, right? There's nothing you do to get there. And so then the justifying grace of God is not so much about cleansing us so that God can look at us and love us. God already loves us more than we could ever know. But it's more about cleansing us from, yes, maybe some personal moral sins that we feel convicted of. But did you hear the language we use in the liturgy just a moment ago? That second question that we ask to folks who are about to receive baptism or receive it on the part of their child. We say this, did you hear it? Do you accept the freedom and power that God gives you to resist evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves. I'm going to read that again because, holy goodness, there's a lot in that statement. Do you accept the freedom and power God gives you to resist evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves? The cleansing, justifying grace of God is not just about cleansing us in a personal sense. It's about cleansing our indifference, it's about cleansing our self selfishness and our, and our belief that we can self-isolate and live on an island and not be impacted by other people. It's a cleansing of apathy or the unwillingness to care, right? It's a cleansing that then invites us, that calls us into a life where meaning is found in each other and in this world that God calls home. It's a different kind of cleansing. It's not just about what we're cleansed of but also what we're cleansed for. Lastly, there's this aspect of grace we call sanctifying grace. And that's really the grace of God that carries us through the entire rest of our lives. once we have um, come to have faith in Jesus, once we've come to put our trust in God, then the sanctifying grace is what sustains us, what carries us through the life of faith. It's what allows us to step into a world where evil, injustice, and oppression exist and and gives us the courage, the boldness, the tenacity, the endurance to say, this is not right. This world deserves better. We are sanctified by God's grace, not out of a stressed-out desire to earn God's love, but rather a humble desire to be God's love. So it's grace, but it's functioning in three distinct ways, that provenient grace that covers us all without merit, that justifying grace which cleanses us not just of whatever we feel personally convicted of, but it cleanses and calls us into community and to care, and that sanctifying grace which carries us through a life of faith. The bottom line is this. Baptism acknowledges the grace of God that covers us, cleanses us, and carries us always. We need to understand grace in this way because we see it come up again in just a few verses later in chapter 4 in the Gospel of Luke. Remember I said what's important is what comes next. After Jesus' baptism, before he enters into his uh, time of public ministry as an adult, um, Jesus wanders in the wilderness for 40 days. And this will sound familiar to anyone who is familiar with the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures. The Israelites, in their story, wander for 40 years in the wilderness on their way to the promised land. And here, Jesus is kind of paralleling their journey, their story, by wandering in the wilderness for 40 days. And he's met by this personification of evil that is called the devil. And I want to say a word real quick. Don't get lost in this, right? Um, this is a story that is clearly intended by the author to be highly symbolic, right? Uh, as we'll soon find out. Um, so this is, this is a, a symbolic story that we ought not get lost in the literalness of, Okay. Beginning in verse one, it says this: Jesus turned from the river, returned from the Jordan River, full of the Holy Spirit, and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. There's that sanctifying grace alive and at work. There he was tempted for forty days by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and afterward, Jesus was starving. The devil said to him, "Since you are God's son, command this stone to become a loaf of bread." And Jesus replied, "It's written, people don't live by, won't live only by bread." So we're going to see three temptations in this story. Three temptations, three forms of grace. I wonder if Pastor Scott's trying to make a connection here. Ding, ding, ding. Um, This first temptation is about bread, but it's not about bread. Right? This is not simply about Jesus's hunger and, and and the devil trying to speak into that. See, if, if you were reading the story, hearing the story as a Jew in Jesus's day, and you were making those connections to the story of the Israelites, you would know that they had bread as well. It came in the form of manna, this flat bread that that Jesus uh, that that God provided on a daily basis for them during their wandering in the wilderness. It was that provision, that daily provision that God offered them. But it was more than just physical sustenance. It was a sign, a symbol of the grace of God that says, I see you, I know you, I love you, and I care, That's what the bread, that's what the manna was really about. God looking down, even in the wilderness, even in the lost and lonely and dry parched places, I see you, I know you, I love you, I care. That's what it represents. And so when Jesus is tempted to make his own bread, it's more than just bread, right? It's about denying that truth, that acknowledgement that God sees me, knows me, and loves me. We are tempted by bread, my friends, when we are tempted to believe that God does not see us, does not know us, does not love us, does not care exactly as we are. That provenient grace that that we say we believe, that we profess over the waters of baptism, that before we do a thing, God already sees us, knows us, claims us, loves us, and cares. To deny that is to be tempted by bread. Have you ever gone hungry in search of bread in your life? That those things that you try to fill that void, that really can't be filled because it's that inner truth, that knowledge that you are seen and known and loved and cared for. Next it says, the devil, in verse 5, the devil led him to a high place and showed him in a single instant all the kingdoms of the world. So the devil was a flat earth conspirator. Um, That was a joke that three people got. Cool. All right, the devil said... I will give you this whole domain and the glory of all these kingdoms. I don't mind bombing jokes, by the way. It doesn't bother me in the least. Um, It's been entrusted to me, and I can give it to anyone I want. Therefore, if you will worship me, it will all be yours, he said. And Jesus answered, it's written, you will worship the Lord your God and serve only him. So up on this mountaintop, Jesus has offered control over every nation, but it's more than just power, right? It's also the wealth that comes with that, to be Lord over all the kingdoms. I mean, talk about power, talk about control, talk about wealth. Isn't it interesting that up on this mountaintop, Jesus says no, and he'll walk down this mountaintop and eventually walk into the land of God's people, and he will position himself not up high with the mighty and the powerful and the wealthy, but instead he will offer his power to the powerless and place himself with the poor of the world. Isn't that interesting? It's as though Jesus has been cleansed of that notion that somehow we can be above everybody else and the world can be right. It's as though Jesus has been cleansed of that notion that we don't really belong to each other. It's as though Jesus has been called into this new understanding where we are all inherently connected and lording over others is not the way that God designed this world to work. Have you ever been tempted by the mountain before? We are tempted by the mountain when we are tempted to believe that our highest calling is to be the highest power. We are tempted by the mountain. We believe that our highest calling is to be the highest power. And this can come in different forms. It can come in, it can look like trying to climb the corporate ladder or saying, ooh, I wish I could donate to that good cause, but daddy needs a new Traeger, you know? It can come in different forms, and sometimes it can come in insidiously small forms and fashions. But to be tempted by the mountain is to climb up to that high place and think, this feels pretty good. I like lording up here. This is why we always baptize in the context of community in the Methodist church. You will never experience, I hope, a Methodist baptism that's done in private. Because as much as it is about the covenant being made by the person or their sponsor in their baptism, it's also about the covenant made by us, the people called the church. That's what makes baptism sacramental. That's what makes it sacred because there is a covenanting happening throughout the people to say we belong to each other. There is more to this life than any single one of us. It's so that we can practice what heaven should look like here in this place. It's so that we can begin to live as the world should be when we know it's right, when we see each other eye to eye, when we treat each other with equity and respect. That is the importance of the justifying, cleansing grace of God. The devil has one more temptation for Jesus. He brings him, it says, the devil brought him into Jerusalem and stood him at the highest point of the temple. And he said to Jesus, since you are God's son, throw yourself down from here, for it is written. See, the devil knows scripture, in case you were wondering. Just because you're quoting the Bible doesn't mean you're not evil incarnate. Somebody say amen. Amen. The devil says, it's it's written, he will command his angels concerning you to protect you and they will take you up in their hands so that you won't hit your foot on a stone. And Jesus answered, it's been said, don't test the Lord your God. After finishing every temptation, the devil departed from him until the next opportunity. As I said before, the story is wrapped up in symbolism, right? And so the temple could represent so many things and there are many ways to understand it. But I wonder today, If for many people in those days, and for us today, perhaps the temple had begun to represent that darker side of religion. The same temple that the devil brings Jesus up to to tempt him is the same temple that Jesus will walk into and turn tables. Why? Because as he says, this was meant to be a house of worship. It had become a den of thieves. Sometimes the religious structures break. And not just they break, but they break people in the process. I think sometimes we can be tempted by the power that seems to be offered by religious structures. I say this as someone who is an ordained Methodist clergy person. I believe in the structure of religion, and I also know in the deepest parts of myself how much damage can be done. Because ultimately, this structure can so frequently fail us in the same way that the temple had failed its people in Jesus' day. It becomes a source of guilt a source of shame, a source of inequality, a source of greater care for the institution than for the people it was designed to serve. Do you hear me, United Methodist Denomination? Does it sound familiar? My friends, we are tempted by the temple, as good churchy people, when we are tempted to believe that the broken structures of religion can save us. Religious structures on their own do not save anybody. Holy Spirit, the grace of God that's alive and at work in those structures, sometimes the grace of God that breaks those structures, that can save us. The antidote to these temptations, all three, of bread, of mountain, of temple, the antidote can be found in those waters of baptism, where Jesus receives his deep-seated identity where Jesus experiences that grace of God at work in three distinct ways, where we are reminded ourselves in these waters of God's grace that covers us and cleanses us and carries us always for all time. As I was preparing this sermon um, and going over it yesterday, I learned that our church grew by one yesterday. Did you know that Saturday was a good day for our church? We grew by one. There was a baby born in our church community. June Marie Childs came to the earth yesterday. Yeah. And I'll tell you, the theology of baptism and grace hits a little bit different on a day like yesterday. And so I felt the Spirit, (laughs) and I thought a good way to end this sermon might be to start this series with a blessing not just for June Marie, certainly in her honor, but a blessing for every child of God. I hope a blessing that each one of us could receive, each one of us could receive. I see you folks online. Here's a blessing for every child of God over the waters of baptism. In the beginning, the Spirit hovered over the waters, and now she hovers over you, your beauty, your imperfections, the wandering streams of the choices you have yet to make, the ocean of all that you are. May her grace cover you, all of you, always. And one day you'll meet Jesus. You'll meet him in the earnest eyes of the man holding a cardboard sign by the side of the road. You'll meet him in the fierce heart of the mother ushering her child across a border in the dead of night. You'll meet him in the lost and lonely feet of the teenager who came out of the closet and then was thrown out of their home. You may even meet Jesus in a stained glass church, in the songs and the suppers, in the wisdom and the work, in the doubts and the disbelief. May you meet him as a friend and may his grace cleanse you, cleanse you of hatred cleanse you of apathy, cleanse you of shame. Welcome to the world, wonderful child of God. This life will not be easy, and faith may only increase the strain, but the greatest news of all is this, little one. You are never alone. The same God who covered and cleansed you will carry you, all of you, always. God is the immeasurable strength in the midst of weakness, the abundance when all seems too scarce, the pinprick of light in the overwhelming flood of darkness, the community of support when isolation takes hold, the deluge of love in a drought-stricken land. This is the grace you were born into, child of God. May it wash over you like a rising tide, and may you choose to follow the flow as grace guides you forevermore, covered, cleansed, and carried, all of you, always. Amen.